This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, how are you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? Oh, it's Thursday, but I'm not here. Well, I'm, I'm here, but I'm not. I'm on holiday, as you know. But I thought uh, we should definitely have an episode, considering we missed last week. Again, apologies, just, you know, life. Um, this week I'm joined by uh, Tim Downey, and it does get quite actory, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. We do talk about the trajectory of uh, a career and how things don't happen straight away. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sure... We all know that, but I think it's really important for younger actors to hear uh, Tim's journey. And he's just an absolute delight. Look, you're going to know Tim from uh, the Mega Smash Outlander. Is that how you say it? Outlander? Did I say Outlander? No, that's not what we emphasise. Outlander. And, oh, Upstart Crow, which is a huge smash for new comedy. And, of course... The excellent toast of London, which obviously stars past DSP favourite, the delicious Matt Berry. And if you haven't listened to that episode, do go back. In fact, go back and listen to everything before this. No, I mean you don't have to. You choose at your leisure. But Tim is a, a joy, and uh, do follow him on Instagram because uh, uh, we start off talking about how during lockdown one he started reading children's stories and uh, they grew and grew and grew and became quite the smash. He is a lovely, lovely chap and I think you're going to enjoy this very, very much. This is the Two Shot Podcast with the wonderful Tim Downey. Enjoy. I'll see you at the end. Tim Downey, how are you? Very good, mate. How are you? I'm good. I feel that certainly um, when I was watching you quite a lot, I got quite addicted to you reading stories over Instagram <laughs> during lockdown. But I do feel that any time I see you, um, your moustache has become somewhat of a trademark. And then when I don't see you with it on telly... yeah. Um, it reminds me of a time when, because my dad's always had a moustache, and yeah. when my sister was young, um, for the first time I can remember, he shaved it off and she would not go near him and she just burst into tears. Yeah, that is exactly the same thing that happened to my youngest. My eldest couldn't really care one way or the mm. other, just sort of like, oh, it's daddy, that's fine. But I shaved it off um, for the first time, I think, in her life, at least where she was aware that I was actually taking it off when I was doing Outlander. And I had planned this whole elaborate 
kind of setup of going, well, I'll do it with her, and you sit her down, and you can see the whole thing. As I yeah. heard, that is what you should do. <laughs> Obviously, run out of time, took it off, she went off to school, came back, opened the door, went, hello, and again, <laughs> burst into tears. Burst into tears, didn't it? And still mentions it to this day, like a year and a half from the first time that I did it. Don't do that again, Daddy. Don't, no, don't I mean, shave that off. Already that's years of therapy, and that's that that's on you. You'll be absolutely shelling shall- it out later. Oh yeah, no, oh yeah, paying it paying it forward with that. No, I remember when I had a beard for about eighteen months, but like a big old huge thing covering my face, and um, I just got the clippers out and got my little boy to come to the bathroom and just go right. You you take it all off, and he was kind of he was. God, he was how old was he? Probably about five or six. I think that's the, the age, isn't it? It's it's, mm. it's about around that age, that pivotal age. <laughs> five. She, my youngest, five. Same thing. Um, Tim, what was uh, the idea? Where did the idea come for reading these stories that you were doing on Instagram? Because it seems to me that that is a CBB show that that doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, well, I agree. I agree. I think they're missing, <laughs> missing an absolute trick um, there. I think it, it was a it was a mixture of a, like a lot of different things. It was a mixture of trying to entertain entertain children in lockdown, mm. as in mine, and trying to keep them interested because I think I started it during lockdown one, and there was that kind of peak of lockdown one, which was you can only go out for an hour a day, you can only there was so little you could do. So it was a mixture of, okay, well, I, you know, we could tell stories. That's again, it, it kind of fed into what, to what was being taken away from being storytellers and actors and creators is you couldn't really do that. So I thought, well, I could try and combine two things together is try and entertain children and stop them climbing the walls and destroying my house and telling some stories and just doing Doing a little, doing a little something, and then it kind of just evolved from from that. A few people mentioned it on um, on Instagram, and my wife said, "That's that's quite a good idea. Why don't you do that?" And I was like, oh, I, "I don't know. I don't know. Is anyone even going to watch it? I mean, who's going to watch that?" Um, and we thought, "Okay, well, we'll do it. We'll do it a little bit." And I only planned like, "Okay, we'll do it. I'll do it for like five evenings, and that's and that's it." And then it ended up being the entirety of of that first lockdown doing it every yeah. single every single night which was quite which was quite quite something but it became incredibly therapeutic after a while as well well having i was going to say having a little have, break you and know. a routine having a little routine as well Absolutely. when everything else is just in disarray yeah yeah and 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 it was just um kind of time out of time like with all the kind of horrors and people kind of running around going, oh god what are we going to do you you know, for like sort of 10, 15 minutes, you could just sort of say, well, this is harking back to childhood. This is nothing better than when someone just says, I'll read you a story. Let's mm. just, let me tell you a story. And when it's a good story, there's, I don't think there's anything, there's anything better than telling a, telling a story and having that moment of just innocence of just kind of, this is your, this is your break. And I had friends, or rather, you know, people in all over the world that were sort of saying, you know, I'm an ambulance driver in, in in New York, and I would take my break for that 10, 15 minutes or make sure my break was around that time. And it was just a break from everything, just for a minute, just for that little gap of just being read, simply read a story and being silly and it being 
almost like as it was before before these end times. Mm. It was that you know back to as it was before. But, but also um, to t- to take you away. And I remember, and I, and I've said this before on the podcast, I, uh, and not to get bogged down in all the lockdown talk because I don't really like that. We need to get away from <laughs> that. Do. But um, I, I did find it hard to focus and I love to read so much. So for somebody to sit down and just read you a story when your focus mm. is, is, is completely out the window is such a lovely, warm, cuddly thing to do. Because, you know, I mean, we got quite addicted to Taika Waititi as well when he was reading... Um, what was he? Reading? I want to say James and the Giant Peach, and I might be wrong, mm. but anyway, whichever one. And he got a whole host of different people, sort of every week, to come in. And it was just a lovely, warm, delicious thing to yeah. just look forward to every night. Yeah, absolutely. And it was it was great. The only that was the only downside is suddenly you go from sort of having four or five kids' books to sort of saying, I've got over like two hundred books now. <laughs> that then people sort of like send in and go, Oh, this was my favourite. When I was a kid, please read this and you know, send it to your agents. So you just kind of go, I have hundreds and hundreds of kids' books, which was, you know, which was great. And some, you know, you do begin to discern what's a good book, what isn't good, what really works, um, and what sort of fits in with, you know, what, what I like and what, you know, my, my kids like. Anything with voices my kids loved. And if yes. you silly voices, as many different characters as possible talking to each other. I guess it's because it sounds visual in that strange way. Mm. You kind of go, oh, okay, this is what this looks like or that looks like. And but as well, it. you you as Tim reading also became a slightly heightened character, a slightly yeah. heightened version of yeah. you. It was it was it was like you were, oh hello, you're welcoming these people, and it really reminded me of and younger listeners won't know what we're talking about, but when. Jack and Nori was mm. at its at its peak, yeah. and I, I used to get so excited. And I remember my favourite because it was Rick Mail reading uh, George's Marvelous Medicine, my absolute favourite, because it was almost like he'd gate crashed Jack and Nori, and he wasn't really allowed to be there because he's so Rick and that mm. heightened Rick, and it was so anarchic, and it was almost naughty when yeah. you, yeah. you shouldn't be watching it, but he was brilliant. <laughs> I have such strong memories of that. I think we need to bring that back for people. It's such... Absolutely, absolutely. It's definitely that anarchic left-field... I mean, I even felt the same when, when Kenneth Williams... Kenneth Williams? Yeah, Kenneth Williams was reading mm. um, uh, Willow the Wisp. Yeah. And there was a certain edginess to her, you know, with evil Edna, and... Uh, and the characters in that. I think that obviously is what kids of our generation, that slightly folk horror slightly edgy way of telling kids stories with a bit, you know, you're not softening anything up, you're giving it edges, which kids well, love and adore. Anything they, with an edge. They love a bit of naughtiness. I think that's why um, Horrible Histories has, has worked as well as it has yeah. for, for children. Because, of course... Uh, my little boy absolutely adores it because some of it is a bit edgy and it's yeah. it's it's just on that level of you know cheekiness and naughtiness, but they're learning at the same time. So I, I I love all that. I think it's fantastic. There's nothing worse than you know, like when you're talking to a child. There's nothing worse than pandering down to a child. Absolutely. And, you know, if you speak to them on the on on a level as just a small human being, I think yeah. they respond. So much better. Absolutely, and they get it. They do. They do understand. They like to be told. Like my kids like just like to know what's going on, rather than living in a world of 
just do it. Just do it. And it, they don't like that. They don't like that uncertainty. I mean, we're always told, you know, early parents, you know, kids like routine and kids like a certain way of doing things because they like to kind of know what's happening. I don't think that changes. I think you've got to kind of keep them up to speed, like going, right, now we're going to do this and this is why we're doing it. Or now this is why this has changed and this is why mm-hmm. this, is, this has happened. And they're very willing to go, okay, okay, fine, I get that. We'll move on. That's fine. So I suppose it's about honesty. Yeah. I don't know. I'm constant. I think we're all constantly learning as parents very and failing and failing. Oh, and every, time. <laughs> every day, many times a day, many times before <laughs> breakfast, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> I remember saying during homeschooling time, right, if I don't lose my shit till lunchtime, I'll be, I'll be, that, that, that I'll be happy with myself. That will be a success. Yeah. Definitely by 11. But we just not look out the window. We we have to do this. Just, it was just end. I can remember looking at the timetable and going, oh, God, almost feeling like I was seven again. I go, what's up first? Oh, fucking hell, it's maths. Oh, God, an hour of that. God. And I would just spend most of my time saying, um, okay, just just sit sit down and do the maths. Sit down and do the maths. And then you'd you'd wander off to try and send an email. Come back and the room would be empty. Now, where, where have you gone? What, have you got? Mm. what are you doing? You do not need the loo again. You do- Did you do it? Have you done it? Yes, I've done it. Well, let's have a look. You've done one question and that's wrong. So you've done nothing. <laughs> you've done nothing. I'm just going to have to sit. Please don't let me chain you to the <laughs> chain you to the fucking desk. Just please. Please just do these number bonds or whatever the fuck this is. I don't even know what it is anymore. We're not teachers. I remember, and apologies to the listeners if I've if repeated myself on this, but I remember listening to... Um, Sophie Alice Baxter was on uh, Radio 4 on a Saturday morning, and she was talking about this. And she was saying, yeah, but we're not teachers. They're, they're, they are trained, they're highly skilled professionals at what they do. So we call it emergency education. And she, I thought she was so on the mm. money with that, because we're rushing to, to the rescue to try and patch things up with plasters and pencil sharpeners and rubbers. But we're not, it's emergency <laughs> education, calling the parents. They're not great, but they'll give it a go. Yeah. Going back to the moustache, and not that it, this podcast is all about the moustache. No. How did it come about? Because sometimes, you know, we mess about with facial hair on jobs. Was it something yeah. that you had to grow? You grew, you grew it and it just stuck? Yeah, exactly. I grew right. it. For uh, for a film, um, many moons ago, I can't even remember how about eight, about eight years or something like that, maybe more. And then, for one reason or other, I think it was funding. The film fell through, so I was left. It was actually like a musketeer film, so I actually had a big moustache and a little kind of sort of musketeery chin piece as well. Mm. And I thought, oh, well, do I do I shave it or do I keep it? And then I thought, well, hang on, this will. This will fox other actors, because if, as an actor, if you walk around with distinct facial hair, it, it unnerves other actors. They go, well, obviously he's working. He's obviously working, because you would, not, you would not choose that as a thing to just walk around and go to Sainsbury's in. That's obviously a thing, and you just wouldn't comment on it like other actors. No, no, of this, yes, I'm just carrying this around, of course. Um, and, then it just, and then it just stuck, and then uh, I think the... I got cast in, in something else. I thought, oh, okay, with the moustache. Okay, well, I'll keep it. And if someone wants, to sh- wants me to take it off, I'll, I'll take it off. And th- then it just, it just kind of stuck. It had many sort of different um, moulds and shapes and all different types of things over the years. And now it's just become sort of 
part and part and parcel of my face so much so that mm. my children scream at me if I, if I take it off but yeah. it's just kind of there now and i can't really remember a time when i do take it off i actually for a first i would say three days look like a turtle because obviously the weight of that of that hair on the top lip pulls the top mm. lip down so you kind of talks very much sort of like with an underbite and uh yeah so that's that's disconcerting because you do have those echoes of yourself before moustache we go i was good looking once i'm pretty sure of that and then you look at the mirror and go god i'm really what the hell happened there <laughs> years have not been kind and then three three or four days later it, it plumps back up natural collagen plumps it up you go okay fine i'm it's, it's vaguely good age has ravaged me but it's vaguely good <laughs> <laughs> now sometimes with the information i get on the internet it is incorrect so we're going to throw this out. Were you... Are you a 1977 baby? I am. I am indeed. Right. So by my reckoning, with you being the year above me mm. at drama school... Yeah. So you started... You started... Because I thought I started young at mm. 17, just on the cusp of, well, just about 18. Yeah. So you were 17 when you started. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. So I was, I think I was actually 16, because actually it's my birthday in two weeks. So I'm a young, for, for the year, I'm a young, young baby, mm. as it were. But I auditioned for Mountview when I was 15, which was God, just... That, that I was, is- I mean, it's I, ridiculous. I've never it's heard ri- of it. It's ridiculous, and I think in my head, I thought to myself, "Well, if I if I if I lie about it, uh, people will believe it." Now, I saw a photo the other day of me at that sort of fifteen, sixteen, and in my head, I look very similar to as I look now, you know, <laughs> like a man. And I looked at it, and I look about eleven, if <laughs> if anything at all. That sort of classic nineties curtains. Baby faces you like. You've got to think, there's no... How did that even... How? I mean, I'm not that good an actor. There's no way I could have <laughs> upped my own age in that way. But somehow, somehow it happened. So, yeah, so when I actually started, I was... Yeah, 16 going on... Going on 17, which was quite... Quite quite something. 94, I think it was. I think I started in 1994. Or the January, that was the next intake... Do you ever look back and think, yeah, that was uh, oh, that was too young? Oh, uh, very much. Yeah, very, very much. Because I th- just because you you need the experience, and I, I remember you know lots of drama teachers beforehand saying, you know, it's all about experience. And as a young actor, you kind of think, I don't need experience. I'll I'll play it. I'll I'll it, it's fine. I'll find it. But you do. You really do need experience. You really do need all of that to give you the nuance and to give you that. That th- those little edges and little stories within stories that you need to tell as a as an actor when you're doing a part, mm. it all all the layers like an onion all kind of come together. And uh, but yeah, bloody hell, I was far too. Young. I remember on one of the very first days we were doing one of those round circle things, and they were sort of going round. Where's everyone from? You know, this is Dave from Ipswich, and this is you know whoever. And how old are you? Thirty two. Oh, right. Shit. <laughs> how old? You know, how old are you? You know, I'm. You know, Lucy, I'm 24 and everything, and then it kind of comes to you. So I think that was an eight, go, yeah, I'm, I'm eight, 18. No one seems to be throwing. Yeah, we're all like, we're all on the same page there. We're all just gonna just leave that where it is. Fine, then I'm 18, and we'll just leave that there. I think that'll be easier. So I remember somebody in my uh, who was 
I think, 27. Mm. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, crikey, that, that, that's old. That is old. <laughs> that's old. Goodness <laughs> me. <laughs> but now, I mean, I remember saying to younger actors, you know, do, you don't, you don't need... I know you feel that you want to get there and you want to get to drama school and you want to train, you want to get out there and start working straight away, but you, you, there's plenty of time. Yeah. There's plenty yeah. of time. You think it's all going to be over by the, end, by the end of the year. You think, if I don't get it done right now, mm. that's it. It's mm. done, it's over. If I don't make it or how I perceive making it to be by, like, the age of 24, it's done. It's done. And we're, you might as well not bother. But it's just, it, yeah, just absolutely isn't true in any way. It needs time. It's like a fine, you know, a fine wine or a fine meal. It needs time, and time is wonderful for that. It just enriches things and your experience and your approach and all sorts of things. But yeah, yeah, sixteen it, was it, too young. Is that what you felt? Is that why you were? Because I know why I was just rushing to leave Blackpool to get to London as quickly as possible. But mm. is that what you were doing? Because where was it? You were Hertfordshire? Hertfordshire, yeah. So I grew up in a little village called Shillington in Hertfordshire. And I think I was. I never really felt sort of at home in the place I was, that is, that was my my home. You know, I was always... Well, in, in, in what way, Tim? Well, in a way that, you know, it was... It grew, grew, growing up in the middle of nowhere... And you either kind of are a country person or you're not, or you enjoy that or you, and I was, I just didn't, I just was bored. And my likes were never the likes of any of my contemporaries. You know, I, I liked reading and I like reading weird shit and I like poetry and I liked, you know, sort of just, I, I deliberately sought out the odd things, the oddness of things and the alternative or the left field, just because I was just fascinated by it, rather than just what I was kind of prescribed or just given by what was out there at the time. And I, and that kind of ostracises you a little bit because you kind of are seen as weird or odd mm. that you would like. Um, you know, if you're going to have a movie night, I would say, well, let's watch some Cronenberg. You're like, you want to watch David Cronenberg? You want to watch <laughs> Rabid or Shivers? <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's watch that. You don't want to watch, you know, Back to the Future. Well, yeah, I've seen it, but why don't we watch this? piece of you know canadian horror you're odd very strange <laughs> so i don't know it's things like that so you know do you think in some respects and this concerns going to drama school and i suppose you know who who you've grown up to be now that you were kind of old before your time i think so i think so i think i've got do you know do you know what i mean by that and absolutely. i do mean that as a, i do mean that as a compliment no very much no i think yeah i think i probably i think i've kind of i think it's been mentioned that i've kind of grown into my face that kind of or just the idea of of certain things i was i don't know if i was ever that young but was in a certain extent it's it's difficult to explain it's always, yeah, quite carefree in things, but I liked things that weren't kind of of the age. Or, like, if I liked... I can remember showing or wanted to show my sister once Hellraiser when she was eight. Right. And... It's responsible. Responsible. Very responsible, sort of elder brother sort of behaviour. And... But I was... What I, what I wanted to sort of say to her is, well, let's watch the making of first. Let's watch the making of, and we can kind of work out how these things are done and the mechanics behind it, because it's a story. It's not real. It's a story. And it's just the way they tell the story that makes that makes the difference. I mean, it still scared the living shit out of her, and I still think she talks about it now. And I, you know, fish hooks, not really the thing for her. Don't want to 
don't want to it's, see that. It's it's a terrifying film. Oh, it's dreadful. It's dreadful. But she was fascinated with the with the, the special effects of the melting body and how they did it by setting up heaters and just kind of melting this figure into the floor and then reversing the film and coming back out again. But I found that, you know, endlessly fascinating, the creativity of it. And just, ah, that's how you, that's how you do it. Mm. Maybe I could use something like that. And just wanted to kind of take as much as, as possible, you know, be it comedy or some weird, you know, Swedish film from the 40s or something like that. You know, just wanted, I want all of it. Give me all of it. I want as much as, as can be done. And when you're growing up in a tiny village, it's not that easily accessible. As we probably experienced as well. You know, there are certain parts. We just, it's very difficult, especially when there was no internet. You had to kind of physically hunt these things out or find mm. a conduit somewhere that would kind of be your, your gateway into kind of, ah, this is, this is uh, you know, a route to take. This is world cinema. This isn't, but this is. These are some great authors. You should read these. Try this. You know, and that was very, uh, very good. Really good. So, so there was a thirst for that sort of, you know, slightly arty left field knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. But these are the films I almost kind of grew up on of like, you know, beat Takashi's early work and, and, uh, you know, Bergman, I adore and watched and watched and watched. And I think that would probably influence as well from either reading like Bukowski because Bukowski mentions, there's a Norwegian writer called, I think it's called Nutt Hampson, who he read a lot of. He wrote The Hunger. See what I mean? Look, already you're going, right, oh, I'm, right. I'm, I, no, right. So you're going, right, Bukowski says that, now no, I'm that going I move down on to this one because now. he yeah. was Norwegian then and he was very influenced by the early films of, you know, the cinematography of Nyquist and Bergman. So I'll have a look at that. I'll see what that's all about. What's so special about this? And then suddenly that opens up this huge world of things and you're going wow that's extraordinary and then you're watching bill and ted and realize that that's been borrowed from the seventh seal of playing chess and on the beach and they're playing battleships and you realize that all these things are interlinked and, and influenced wow, massively influenced you mm. go oh my god this is this is amazing this is extraordinary what else is like that and then you know out it goes ever you know so did you find did you find coming to London that the the doors were more or less sort of flung open to you in that respect for for for, for gaining more knowledge in that arena? Absolutely, and that's what I, that, that's what I always wanted. I just wanted that that space to you know explore things and yeah find what you like and what you don't like and you know where I grew up. What it just it just wasn't there. So. London was the place for that, a big city. I think, just, I think I've always been a city dweller, even though I've lived in a village. You know, mm. I've always wanted that sort of noise. And if I want to go out at, you know, 10 o'clock at night, I can find a coffee. Or if I want to, you know, nothing all shuts at four and that kind of thing. So, yeah, so that, I think that was a main drive uh, to, you know, to get out of, of the village and things like that. How were your parents with this? Because... It, you know, we've already established that even now, as you know, <coughs> early forty-year-old men, well, um, well. we <laughs> we both agree that 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 was ridiculously young. Mm. So, how were they? Were they supportive of this? Uh, my father thought it was all very strange. He, my father still thinks it's very strange that I'm that I'm an actor. Like he can't. What do, what does or or did your father do for a living, Tim? He um, he was in the building trade. Mm. So he was a um, he was a surveyor right. for, for many years um, for a, um, uh, a company called McCarthy and Stone who do retirement homes and things like that. 
Um, so his world was very, very different um, to the one that I was kind of entering. And, I, and he still finds it odd that I do... Great fan of comedy, which is where I've got my sort of love and adoration for comedy. Is That's all he would ever listen to was like Hancock or Round the Horn or The Goons and would watch Arthur Askey or Will Hay or Ealing Comedies, Guinness and all of that. So that's where I kind of get my love of comedy is from is from that education. But I don't think he ever wanted to watch anything made after about 1958. Like anything after that was a bit risky. Was it getting a little bit, a bit edgy this? Um, so me going in to do what I'm doing, he, he, you know, he still finds it awkward. You know, if someone, if someone kisses on screen, even if it's just sort of goodbye, dear, he finds it very, oh, dear. Oh, that's, that's unnecessary. So, you know, you obviously suggest Game of Thrones straight away just to see, <laughs> to see what his reaction would be to that. But my mother, um, who had a much uh, stricter upbringing, was, was very much for it. She had opportunities that were presented to her, but her parents said, no, you're not doing it. You're doing what we're telling you to do. And that's, right. and that's the beginning and the end of it. So I think because I showed signs of this sort of creativeness or this artiness and the want and want and desire to do it, I think she was very much sort of like, well, you do it. Don't let any, don't let any of I could tell you any different. You do it. And if you want to go now, then we'll do it. We'll make it happen. You go and you go for it and we will, I will support you as much as is needed. Having known nothing, like I'm not from a background of, you know, artists or people that knew people in London, you know, I knew nobody, nothing. The only kind of link to the arts was basically kind of local amdrams and uh, then drama school. And that was it. There wasn't anyone sort of like, oh, you know, such and such, no such and such. Were you doing drama at school or was that not an option? Yeah, little bits, little bits and pieces. It was mainly through um, uh, the Bancroft Players, which is oddly where Ben Wishaw went. Um, right. Because he was, he was in school with me, but about two or three years younger. Um, and so, so it, was, it, was, it had elements of artiness around the area, but it was never really kind of pushed. But the Bancroft Players was a bit of sort of a haven and there were some, you know, some really good people that went there and some real artists. And they, they did nurture, as, much, as far as they could, people that wanted to, wanted to do it. Like they you know, took shows to Edinburgh and things like mm. that and, you know, just sort of showed, showed them, the, you know, the, a way. Um, but, yeah, um, but that was it. But then, yeah, go back to my mother is then deciding, OK, well, if you want to do it, then let's... Let's do it. I remember one time my school said it's, it, yeah, I think it was about 15 or maybe a bit younger, maybe about 13, 14. And it was work experience. And they said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be an actor. They went, no, seriously. What would you, what would you like to do? <laughs> I want to be an actor. Okay, well, there's an opening in the local museum who are doing a, um, uh, a piece about the Second World War and they need someone to dig a trench. <laughs> but I, I want to be an actor. It's very arty, though. It's for a <laughs> it's for a performance piece about. So they need you to dig a trench. Okay, I don't know. I don't know about that. So my mother said that's ridiculous. I will write to Kenneth Branagh. Okay, I'll write. I'll find his address or wherever somewhere. they're doing something somewhere. And I think he was doing Hamlet at the Barbican. So I'll write to the Barbican. I'll write, you know, Kenneth Branagh, care of the Barbican. So she wrote. 
She wrote to him and didn't hear anything. And then about two weeks later, a letter arrives from Kenneth Branagh saying, oh, I hear your Thank you for your letter, Mrs. Downey. Um, we'd very much like to have your son for work experience. If he would like to join us on our run at the, uh, at, at the Barbican, we think that would be, that would be fantastic. You know, would love that, love to arrange it. So I took that into school kind of going, isn't this amazing? This is, it's Kenneth Branagh. This saying, is amazing. I want to, you know, he wants me to do work experience with him. And they went, that's great. You're digging trenches. What? Yeah. So I then had to go and dig a trench for, for two weeks, which gives you an idea of kind of, you know, the artiness of uh, all the sort of... Fucking yeah. hell. I'm gutted for you. I am I got so really unbelievably excited. gutted. So unbelievably gutted. Although I did... Wonderful thing is how things come around is when I did the, uh, the Christmas edition of Upstart Crow, it had Kenneth Branner, and I told him that story. And he was uh, he was very upset. I didn't obviously didn't didn't come and see him, but he thought it was a wonderful story. And you know, to sort of say thank you to was, my to my mum. I was about to say, please tell me you've bumped into Kenneth Branagh or you've told him that story. I have, I have. Tim, did you keep the letter? I did. My mother, my mother still has it. Sign, sign at the bottom. My mother still has it in sort of like you know her little files of the things that I have done. The work experience that could have been. That could have been. the great. Who knows what would have happened. But, uh, yeah, ended up in Letchworth I mean, digging a trench. How awful for your school to completely lock the door on that yeah. and go, no, 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 you're digging a trench. Yeah. That's, that's, this is what's on offer. Let's not, let's not start getting above ourselves. This is what you're doing. Well, that's it, isn't it? Let, yeah. No, no, no. Know your place. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you do want to try and pursue a career in the arts. And I'm sure you can do that in your own spare time. Yeah. But let's look, let's be serious about this. Yeah. The amount of times <laughs> that, I, that I've heard careers advisors who used to say things like that. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I'm, well, wouldn't that be nice? Yes. But that doesn't happen to people like you. Yeah. Exactly. Look around. It's not going to happen. So this is lovely. Thank you for thank you for the conversation. You wasted five minutes of my life. So mm. now let's think about something. It's about a trade. But, you know, it's so incredible. Certainly in the past oh, 20 years, I would say, when, you know, street casting has become ever so popular and they've been, you know, I... You know, when Des Hamilton was going around trying to cast This Is England and looking for for Tomo's character, and they just went, right, OK, let's go to Grimsby and let's try and find somebody, let's go around schools and pluck somebody out, you know. Mm. And I always say to the younger actors as well, I'm, I know you're excited and I know you feel you want to go to drama school, but that isn't always the route, and it doesn't have to be. No. Because for all those people that are being told, yes, 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 Stay in your box. It doesn't happen to people like you. The thing is, it the thing it could it, it could yes. happen. So you have to be open minded if you want to pursue that as mm. a career. Absolutely, absolutely. And you've got to be driven, and you've got to really want it as well. And there are there is so much talent out there, and I worry that what will happen. Yeah, the other thing as well is I we didn't have any money. Like we were not a wealthy family. We were sort of, you know, you know, we had books and music and things like that, which is, and that's kind of it. Like we didn't have expendable cash. So the idea of spending 
I think at the time it was something like two or three grand a term for Mount View. Mm. Just, just, um, there's just no way. There's just no way. So I actually got a grant, which was the la- I think the last year that the council gave grants. And then after that, yeah. they cut all, all arts funding. Mm. And my worry is that it become, is that you, you, you will make the arts too elitist. Is that the, oh, it, it's only sustainable for families with money, which then narrows that pool and becomes far too monoculture. And the beauty of this country is the richness of its diversity and the stories from all corners of it. And I, they're the ones I want to hear. I want to hear all those stories and I want those different accents and voices. I want all of this. I worry that it will get, it'll just narrow and narrow and narrow. But it is a worry. It. It, 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 it's a huge worry because mm. then all we're churning out is the same voices, the same stories, mm. and we won't be getting the stories from every angle mm. and every region. You know, I mean, I was talking to somebody about how I wished that the lovely play for today's was still going on and I want to see that one-off that's set in Nottingham or I want to know about that couple in Glasgow who are deeply unhappy. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We need to keep churning those stories out, you know, and I think it's, you know, it is people like Jimmy McGovern and like Shane Meadows, who are driving that on and plucking people out of obscurity and going, look at that talent. Look Mm. at what we've just found there. We don't have to keep casting the same people that the BBC are pushing on us because there are voices out there and they need to be heard and those stories do need to be told because people need to see and hear them. Absolutely do, because you need that little kid that's, you know, sitting in Grimsby or something like that to be inspired and to think, yes, that could be me. Mm. That exactly. could be me because I've seen because it's ref- I, I am there I'm reflected back and the th- the thing is even when we get into these discussions and I've done many times there is room for everybody it's Absolutely. not well, I would never dream of quote unquote posh bashing it's not it's not mm. it's not about that no. it's like I want as you just said you know I want that person who is sat there watching or listening to something going oh, look, there's a person who sounds like me, who has the same skin colour as me, who looks a little bit odd, that's a bit like me. Yeah. That, therefore, that could be me. I could do it. It could be uh, a viable option. And mm. um, that's the thing when I do these podcasts and we get very passionate, because obviously <laughs> you can't... No-one can see me. Oh, I'm just, like, <laughs> getting my hands and putting my hands around someone's neck and throttling them. Um, so speaking of training... We've established that you have that we that you were young, and I don't think you regret it. But would you have, if we could go back and change, would you have paused and and taken on some more life experience before you dived into those three years, or do you think, well, that was the time and I did it, and we shouldn't really look back? Mm. I think there's a, I think it's a little from column A and a little from column B because mm. I think you know I wanted I wanted to get out of where I was, and I wanted just to to do what I wanted to do. I just wanted to do that. That's what I wanted to do. So let's just go and do that. It's almost like what we've been saying before is, well, why not go and try it? Just try it. See, go and try. Nothing worse in this life than kind of looking back and thinking, if only. 
only I'd have done this, I wonder what, ah, if only. So there's part of me that thinks, no, good, I'm glad I did it. It was, you know, reckless to do it. But how exciting is that? That's kind of the spice of life is being, taking it by the scruff of the neck and just running with it. Absolutely, yeah. Just to see what will happen, you know, running with the bulls for a second. There's another aspect that thinks I probably would have got more out of it if I had been a little bit older, if I had been 18, 19, 20, within that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And just because the growth that I had within those years between 16 to 19 was mon- was absolutely monumental. Like, it, just the explosion. You kind of, you know, I... Uh, it's, you almost learn as much within those three years as you have done in the last 16, 17, because it is so eye-opening. So there is an element of that. If I could have had that experience but kind of shoved it into a, a 16-year-old, that it would have been perfect. I but, think you're right, you know, and, you know, we can carry on for years saying, if only, if only, mm. and it's not the healthiest of questions to keep asking yourself. And also, the level of intensity over that three years... It can be overwhelming yeah. at times. Yeah, totally. And, it, and you know, many times it was. Many times I was, I felt like I was treading water, just like going, I have no idea, no idea what mm. is going on or emotions that you are feeling and that kind of thing because they're kind of bringing it out or all all sorts of things, relationships with people, the complexities of relationships with older people and uh, people from different areas and all these kind of things that you just had not experienced because you grew up in the village and you went to the local school in the town that was the next one along. So your world was tiny. It was, you know, my world was surrounded by the Chilterns and that basically, that's basically it. Um, so, yeah, so it was, yes, you know, ex- extraordinary. And it was quite interesting. I did um, My Teenage Diary with Rufus Hound a couple of months ago and they said, go through the diary. So I found my diary from 1994, my first year at Mountview. And what I hadn't realised is I have so many sort of certain memories that I thought were kind of scattered over a certain, over like a celestial three years, four years. And it all happened in that first year. All of these things were concertinaed into like a kind of six month time span, Mm. which was like bloody hell, a lot, like a lot happened. There was a lot of flim flam. There was a lot of sort of like, do they like me? Do they not? But there were certain other moments where you go, God, that's, that's extraordinary. My first sort of big London gig was in 1994. My first um, sort of like, you know, heartbreaks were in 1994 that you write about. You know, really kind of milestones. Yeah. It's like, God, it all happened in 1994. What a year. Height of Britpop. I mean, who knew? <laughs> who knew it all happened? <laughs> and coming through that experience and then stepping out into what we hope is going to be the start of a career, as we know, for everybody, it's never that easy. No. And it's never as smooth as what you think. Mm. And, and, and I may be wrong here, because obviously we haven't, um, we haven't spoken for years and years and years and years and years. But obviously I've seen what you've been doing, and it seems to me from the outside that things have been gently simmering over the years. And then certainly I feel over, say, the past five to seven years, everything seems to have come to a head and there's lots, you're Mm. scattering lots and lots of different things. Certainly 
and especially different comedy when you're comparing something like Upstart Crow, or then you're doing Toast of London, or then you're in a, this huge Outlander, which is like blown up all over the world. Mm. Do you think? And here's the thing: when I was at drama school in my final year, the, uh, I was sat down, and they, you know they give you some sort of overall encouragement and assessment, mm. um, and I was told, well. You'll never work uh, until you are in your 40s because you have this face and you're a character. And, you know, they they were wrong. So, Um, (laughs) But I seem to... I I feel that the older or certainly the way that you've grown into yourself Mm. has encouraged these parts to come at at quite a a pivotal point in your career. Yeah, I think think that's, that's probably true. And I think it also comes... With a sense, I think that, that, that almost like that turning point was the the change between being sort of like a young actor that kind of fits into certain certain brackets, sort of like being a young upstart actor because I was so young. So you're kind mm. of put into certain points, and then there's that kind of sea change as you kind of shift from one gear into the other. And I think there's another aspect as well is that because I think I was kind of. Brought, I was brought up on a lot of comedy, and I think I kind of railed and against it by kind of thinking, well, I'm not, I don't want to be, I'm, I'm dark and brooding. I'm a dark, brooding actor, and I'm very serious, and this is, <laughs> this is, this is what I do. I'm, you know, dark and broody. And so you kind of fight against the instinct that's kind of in you, even though my instinct was going, well, you could make a gag out of that. If you did this or this, then that would make, you could do this or this, because it's kind of in your bones and your DNA to kind of, twist it, look at it different ways. And then I think once I gave into that and kind of said, okay, that's, that's fun, but that's fun. And I'm, dare I say, I'm quite good at that. So let's, let's do that. And it kind of took the pressure off of trying to kind of mould yourself into, some, into, something, into something else. And just kind of go, well, I'm good at this and let's see, let's see what that does. And I think in that kind of relaxing um, in my own head and creatively kind of relaxing going, well, just because you're good at it doesn't mean, doesn't mean it's, it has to be difficult. That idea of if you're not, if it's not, if you're not struggling and really kind of beating yourself up and bleeding out of your eyes and you're not doing your job, Matt, <laughs> you have got to be really kind of up against it. You've got to be weeping every time you come home. But sometimes, you know, if you're, you have a natural kind of propensity for something, then it's a joy and I think allowing that joy in suddenly makes things a bit easier. It's like any relationship almost, you know. It shouldn't be difficult. It should, you go, oh, yeah, this is, this is actually quite nice and mm. almost quite relaxed in certain respects because you're just allowing what you can do to come through. And then there's other brilliant people that will sort of channel wherever it is you're going to create the thing that you're doing. Um, so that has been yeah, a, a great revelation. And I think, it, yeah, it, allowing that to settle and kind of go oh this is who i am this is who i am i think that comes with age is just being confident enough to go okay well this is this is who i am and this is what i can do and then other people see that it's like it's like that old actors thing about being you'd never go into a cast and go god i need this god i need this i need this so bad if you don't cast me i will not eat my children will go shoeless you know you don't. People go, oh dear, no, that looks a little. Oh, I can't spend two months with that. That's a bit. No. That's a bit well, much. Ex- exactly. You know, I mean, 
I want to talk about auditions a little bit, but it's a bit, you know, you go in, and I always say, certainly to younger actors, remember, you're, wor- you're going to be working with these people, so look at them. If they're dickheads, you're not going to be wanting to spend two or three... If, you're being, if they're directing you like that in the room, imagine what they're going to be like on the floor in front of a mm. crew. They're going to be awful. <laughs> and that's not going to be a nice experience for you as much as you want to, to mm. work and learn. So remember, I always think it's a two-way thing. Very definitely. Very definitely. And Again, that, that's like, that takes experience and, and a bit more life and, and work knowledge to, I suppose, to be... Uh, well, knowledgeable, but also confident. It, with that as well. I was going to say it's the confidence. It's that confidence to, without to, being arrogant. Obviously, absolutely. I need to but stress quite, that. Yeah, and it's not. It's, it's the edge of knowing your worth and all that kind of thing. But it's also thinking, God, yeah, do I really want to work with these people for that amount of time? Because mm. the worst thing in the world would be to get a job that you really, really want, and every job you know, every actor really, really wants, and then to just spend two months of just hell, just going, God, this is awful, because it could really tarnish you know years afterwards now just I, having I, that experience and i have to um apologize to anybody listening if i'm repeating this story but if you haven't heard this i remember once being in an audition and it is relevant to what we're talking about um so i was in an audition and everything was running late nothing ever runs on time through no fault of anybody else most of the time and i went in and the director didn't seem very present in the room. Um, and I, we, we started uh, one of the scenes. And in the middle, his phone went off. And it rang and rang, and then he just switched it off. He didn't apologise. Uh, so I said, oh, can we just start again? Is that fine? Because that kind of threw me. No. Uh, yeah, just, just start again. And it rang again. He didn't actually turn it off. He just... <laughs> Dismiss the call. Now, let's put the the shoe on the other foot. If I was in there and my phone went off twice, now, do you not think, and this was some time ago, I'd say this was uh, 10 to 12 years ago, I would be getting a call from an agent who was looking after me and I would be getting an absolute grilling Mm. on that point. Um... So what I, I, you know, whether this was arrogant or not, I rung my agent and went, you can just pull me out. I would not want to work with him mm. at all. If that's what he's like in an audition room. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, you've got to remember, and sometimes he, well, sometimes he did, well, he certainly didn't. Sometimes people don't. People work really hard to prepare and go in that room and they need to feel supported. Mm. And that is... I thought it was completely awful of him to do something like that. And, you know, especially over the past few months, we've heard about auditions where people have had to remove their clothes. Mm. Um, And, you know, we'll talk about knowing your worth before. Go in there and, you know, with the best will in the world, try and own the shop and... Go in there with confidence. Yeah. How, how are you with, well, I suppose, one, with auditions and two, the aftermath about, you know, I always say about letting them go as as quickly as you can, but yeah. we all know that that is, uh, it's easier said than done. Mm. Um, 
it it all depends. Like I don't think you, I don't think an actor gets to the gets mature in any at any point where there's an audition that will always come up where you'll go, God, oh God, I want this. God, this would be amazing. I don't think you you ever get to a point where you can kind of go, yeah, okay, I can shrug that one off because there'll always be one that comes in. You think, yeah, that's that could be incredible. Be it the experience, be it the be it anything about it, just the the joy of playing that particular thing. Um, and I find those tricky to let to let go of. But I do try and actively, you know, compart decompartmentalize them and just got to go right. Let's just focus, focus, focus on this, and then I'm gonna actively try and just get it out of my head just forget mm. about it completely yeah. forget about it because if you don't know you, it'll just eat away eat away slowly 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 over the years just going oh god if only if only if again it goes back to the if onlys again if only if only if only and our world is a cacophony of if onlys because they're everywhere you know they're just scattered around plus you get to see it as well it's not like you're going for a job interview where you'll Ne- probably never ever meet that person or see that again you know you'll literally sit down sometimes and turn it on and go oh yeah i would have with it oh god oh, he is god. good as well god that is really good that's annoying you know and then everyone's going this is the greatest thing i've ever seen oh god you know it's 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 a very different thing so i think it's incredibly important to you know cut it just go right there we go i will do all the work all the work all the work and then i will you know push it aside but what's but changed? I, I was going to say, sorry. No, no, sorry, go on. Sorry, go on. No, no, no you go on. Sorry, no, sorry. I was I interrupted say, you. What's changed recently is the uh, doing the major doing majority of your things in self tape. Like that wasn't really a big thing. Now it's every casting is a, is a self tape, and the difficulty now with like I do all my self tapes with with my wife, and uh, she hates them, as in she hates doing them. <laughs> um and the, the 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 battles that you have of trying to just you know because you go into actor mode and going into actor mode or business mode with someone who is not an actor you realize that you're a, you can be a bit of an arsehole like no no because i've got to focus on this because it's quite tricky it's a tricky little speech and it's got to hit the rhythm and if it doesn't hit the rhythm then it doesn't work and you're going god all right <laughs> oh you missed this word out please don't please don't tell me i've missed a word just did it make sense yes okay because i can show you some videos from the breaking bad castings where he doesn't really get anything right but it's the it's the mood it's the mood he's creating and i'm i'm just trying to create the mood so that's quite a that's quite a change. Where we're always very glad to kind of just draw a line. Go, have you done it? Have you edited it? Have you sent it off? Right, let's just forget about that, and we'll move on to something else. I mean, that is a real test of marriage to involve your wife in self tapes. I think it's it's uh, yeah, it's it's a real it's a real testing ground. It it really is, especially when uh, you'll say to her, could you just give it a bit more here? Sorry, can I do what? Just there, just. When you say that, could you just mean it a bit? Oh, you're directing me now. Yeah. Great. That's, yeah. And that's like, oh, okay, okay. This is supposed to be a lighthearted romantic comedy. And at the moment, we are not talking, I see. So that's, this is, this is, gonna, this is obviously going to be shown. And you'll see and feel it as the tension on screen. But I do think with auditions, I do think it's really important as well to have a little word with yourself and... Be kind to yourself and, you know, mm. in the aftermath, go, right, I'm going to give myself a, a couple of hours to mull it over and go, oh, if only I did that. Oh, why did I say that? Mm. Oh, I think I shook their hand. I mean, no one's shaking hands anymore. No one's in audition rooms. It's not going to happen. <laughs> but just to mull it over and give yourself that time and space and then hopefully it'll just, 
the memories will fly away on their own. Yeah, totally, yeah. No, I agree. I think, yes, you've got to allow yourself little moments. It's, the, it's, it's, it's the horrible, though, when it suddenly, come, suddenly comes back in the middle of the night. Oh, my God, it meant that. Oh, my God, they meant that. Oh, I really didn't. Oh, shit. Oh, well. I'll be hearing from them. That's fine. <laughs> but just going back, because, you know, as we've sort of established, the, the last few years are... I mean, I, from the outset, I would say they're going pretty well career-wise, and not that we talk about jobs on, on this podcast, but I do think in this uh, respect it is important. Mm. But jumping back years prior to that, was it as smooth, or were there times when you thought, I don't think this is happening or things aren't happening at a pace that is healthy or what I need in my life right now is the security of work? Yeah, yeah. Oh, very definitely. There was a, there was a period, you know, I'd ended drama school, and I'd pretty much gone straight from drama school straight into a, into a TV series. And then when that finished, I did three seasons of this, of this kids' show, which oddly had James Corden in it, as well. That was his first TV thing as well. Mm. And then um, then I went straight on to, to Hollyoaks after that, again, sort of, you know, young actor, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, then came, and then came out of that. Uh, so, I, okay, I'll decide to leave because I, like, I want to do other things and try other stuff and that kind of thing. And I think it was just a very funny... It was a very... Well, this is what I tell myself. It was a very funny time that when you leave a soap and then... We're trying to then try and establish yourself in doing, well, you know, I want to do something either serious or comedy or something, something else. Um, and so then it, it, was, it was quite hard. There was a few dribs and drabs. And then during that, in my sort of mid-20s, it really dried up. Like there was very, very little. Um, do you think that so, was because they'd put you in that box and they weren't letting you out? I think so. I think so. It's very hard. It could very easily have just been me, but it did feel that they were. I was kind of in a in a box, and I kind of looked a certain way, um, as in sort of you know, young spiky hair like Deck, that kind of thing. And I think it was very difficult to break out of that mold. Um, I just found it very very difficult. Those kind of mid mid years, those uh, mid twenty for a good couple of years, were just like no progress like nothing like it was stagnating it felt like you were going backwards mm. more than anything else um and so that was very tricky and it, and it was during that you know necessity is the mother of invention so i can remember you know working as we, i suppose we've all done to a certain extent i was working in a bowling alley um at one point and then i was doing you know telesales telemarketing all the usual stuff that that you would do just kind of thinking i just don't understand how to break this this rut. I don't know what the thing is that I need to do to just push me out of it, even just a little bit, even just to kind of just shift and things like that. And it was then that I started um, through a mate of mine who was doing stand up. Who said, "Well, why don't you? Do, why, why don't you come and try and do a little? We just do like little like impro comedy classes. Why don't you come along to one of those?" Like, okay, fine. He said, because you're quite funny. I said, yes, but, you know, being funny, it's like that thing of being funny in a pub to your mates is one thing. Mm. But actually telling a joke from a cold start where people don't know who you are, all of those, is incredibly difficult and terrifying. Yeah. And so it's quite fear-inducing. But I said, okay, I'll I'll try it or come along. Um, And I think that was kind of just the, the seed, that beginning of that germination of, Oh, okay. I can do things to 
to shift my situation. I can actively kind of take a, uh, take a role in my own future rather than trying to wait for things to happen and then kind of, you know, railing against, oh, well, I don't understand why they're not doing this, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're kind of going, okay, I'll almost learn a new skill or I'll try and mould something out of nothing and see what happens. Because also I've realised over the years that sometimes you can set off to do something with a, with a goal in mind. Like, okay, okay, I'm going to go into a comedy class and I'll... Um, start to do stand-up and it might but it might not even be the reason you're doing it might not be self-evident it could just be the people you meet you could meet that one person doing all of that you might jettison the comedy at all but you'll meet that one person and you'll team up and you'll do something or you'll inspire each other to do something that will lead on to something to something else and that was the reason you did it it's not necessarily i'm gonna go to a comedy class to be funny it might be something else and i found that's been uh, invaluable over the years it's just being very open to things and just just trying it almost going back to go forwards just take the ball by the horns and just do it just try it what's to be you'll you're no better off wherever you are just Mm. give it a go the worst that can happen is your is your crap um but you will have learned that and then you'll know not to do it again so you can then learn and grow and go on and do something else but you'll have met people like-minded people you know, artists, creatives um, that will, you know, help and support you. And they did. You know, it's those relationships kind of stay with you. You might not think it at the beginning, but they kind of travel with you. So that's been very interesting. But yeah, they were very tough, strange days to get out of that, get out of that situation. Was there ever a time when it crossed your mind to jack it all in and... Yeah, that, yes, there was. There was, just because you kind of then looking at your uh, friends um, who do other jobs, who just had normal you know, jobs in offices and things like that, and they were starting to earn money. And, you know, you were always the poor actor, always the sort of poor relation that couldn't really afford this, couldn't afford that, could just make rent every month. Um, so there did come a point where we kind of go, yes, but I quite like the trappings of what they have. I quite like that. And that's not a bad thing to want that. But then there was another aspect of going, but, but I don't want to be in a situation in 20 years time of going, God, if I'd only given it another six months. Hey, we've gone I, back to if only. If Look, only again. Yeah, if go. only I'd have done that. But, you know, the wonderful thing in, in hopefully in this story is I circumvented that and just said, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep doing it. I'm just going to keep going. I'm just going to keep doing it. I will give it another six months. And I can't remember who it was. I read an autobiography where they say, well, you know, what you do is you give it another six months. And at the end of the six months, it's not there. Well, then you give it another six months. You just keep going. If you've got the drive and determination and the staying power and hopefully the talent that will latch at some point, then it will happen. You know, it's not for the faint heart. This is a job not for the faint hearted. You know, you've really, you've got to have confidence and resolve absolutely to to keep going because a lot of people will say don't do it a lot of because there's it's just a way of the nature of the beast and you've just got to kind of just plot your path and and go with it and Um, also sometimes those people saying don't do it or who are guiding you when you're younger and saying "Mm, maybe you should think about just digging this trench for you know (laughs) 10 10 years it's often it's often i've no doubt um it's often those people who are actually projecting their fear onto you because they're scared i i I still know people now go oh how could you possibly do what you do and not 
you, you're doing a job from, like, September to December. Yes. So how, how often in that job, that, 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 that period, will you be actually filming? Well, I don't know yet. When do you know? <laughs> well, I don't know until probably about five weeks before, because they have to do a filming schedule, and that's kind of how it works. <gasps> yeah. It just fills yeah. them with Oh, yeah, and then that dread and fear. And then, but then that could change. Yes. That could change, like, literally day to day, depending on what's going on or... I mean, that, that could... Li- so you don't know what's going... Oh, yeah, so you could learn something and then they won't use that. They'll go, oh, actually, we're going to bring scenes forward because we need to do this instead. So you could, you could, it blows people's minds. Go, God, I don't, I don't... But I thrive on that. I enjoy yeah. that. And, that and, you know, ever, ever-changing uh, feel. Well, especially after such a lengthy period of time and, the, you know, the precarious nature... Of mm. of this job, oh yeah, I'm, uh, I thought you were in that film. Oh yeah, I, I, well I, I filmed it, but what, I saw it. Oh yeah, I got cut. I wasn't. I'm not. <laughs> oh, how did that feel? Yeah, a bit gutting at the time, but that's you know that's just the way it is. That's the way it is. Yeah. <gasps> now I've got to go. I've got to be in the office for nine o'clock now. So bye. absolutely, these aren't going to file themselves, Marjorie. <laughs> I understand. I understand. Good day to you. Tim, this has been such a lovely conversation. I'm really pleased um, that you came on and we uh, got time to do this. No, uh, as am I, as am uh, I. No, it's been a real treat. Well, thank you so much, and I'm going to let you go, and I've got a, a, a drizzly Saturday to contend oh, with. Gorgeous. Lovely drizzly Saturday. <laughs> Wonderful. You take care, my friend. <laughs> take care, mate. Another episode is done. What did I tell you? Tim is great. He's got a lovely, fruity, rich voice, which I adore. And uh, we finished at a perfect time then because just seconds after we paused recording, uh, his daughter came in to tell him that there was a man at the door for a mobile COVID test because he was off the Ukraine to film. So, uh, yeah, it's all about timing. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed that episode. It was fab. It was a delight to have Tim on. Uh, now, you know where to find us. If you want to drop us an email, it's twoshotpod at gmail.com. We're on all the socials at twoshotpod. Drop us a message. Let me know what you think. I have got some incredible guests lined up to record. Um, I have a reverend, I have a rock star, I have a journalist, I have an author, I have a television presenter, and of course, I'll have actors. And I'm really trying to get... Oh, I've got a very, very exciting chef as well. See? We're getting out there. I can't wait to meet as many of these people in person as I can speak of in person. Let's be honest... We would love a live show, wouldn't we? All get together in the same room, have a fantastic conversation, throw questions out to the audience. We'd like that, wouldn't we? I don't think it's going to happen this year. I seriously don't. I I just don't think we're ready for it. I mean, we want it. Are we ready? I don't know. Let's keep our powder dry with that. Look, you take care and... um. I'm hopefully not getting too wet on my holiday in Cornwall, but we'll see, and uh, we'll see you next week. So until then, I've been Craig Parkinson. 
He's been producer Griff, and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. I feel like I've got high favour. I'll see you next week. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. <laughs>